I decided to deal with Atlantis and then deal with a whole range of other topics. I went on to Gnosticism and uh, uh, to um, well, the Grail, Eastern legends, Sambhala, uh, the spiritual significance of UFOs, uh, and then I went on to tribal legends and tribal histories, particularly the Maya, for example, and then I went on to uh, dealing with a, a range of other spiritual teachings. I had a section on ancient Egypt, um, a section on Gnosticism, and on the, the Romantic movement in literature, and um, I was really doing, dealing with hidden knowledge, or what you might call secret knowledge, a more dramatic word. And uh, so I, I after, after having done that, I then went, looked, at, there was a recurring, there were several recurring themes in this ancient knowledge, a lot of it was ancient knowledge, and several themes, one of which was a theme of great, a great catastrophe in the ancient past and this kept on coming back and back and back in one set of writings after another and then I found it was equally strong in the uh, um, indigenous oral legends of the American Indians some of them oral, some of them written um, and then equally strong in the Maya legends of Central America very strong also in the legends of the um, Incas and other people of South America and then in the Kahunas the ancient priesthood of Hawaii that's been recent in the last half century has been revived uh, and uh, then in Eastern legends as well so there was this recurring theme so I decided to return to that and I wrote the book which is now called The Cycles of Catastrophe which is about, this is book two which is the whole theme of how there seems to have been a recurring series of catastrophes so having started with the, the, the stream of hidden teachings underlying um, the, the outer sort of history of the world uh, and that's what's now book four but I wrote it first I then picked up the theme of tribal legends and that became book three and linked that to ancient Egypt and uh, also to the ancient megalithic cultures of the west and to certain eastern uh, teachings then I went on to the theme of catastrophe the cycles of catastrophe and that involved a lot of scientific investigation and so really going into a whole lot of scientific investigations and details and trying to get to the bottom of whether there were, for example there had been a <coughs> pole shift whether there had been a fragmenting comet that had rained down bits and pieces um, that is to say on an earth crossing orbit around the sun um, and uh, whether also there had been a great sea level rise which the turn, it turned out that there definitely had been at the end of the last ice age about 425-450 feet which was enough to submerge vast areas of land all around the world <coughs> and then I went returned to the original theme of Atlantis having covered all this catastrophic stuff and realising that in fact all this made Atlantis scientifically a reality it, it meant that it was no longer just a legend because in in investigating all these catastrophes what I'd come to realise was that there was a large amount of areas of land that had gone under at the end of the last ice age had been submerged by the rising sea level and some that had gone under to some extent by subsidence of the seafloor as well and also there'd been these possible aerial bombardments from fragmenting comets and, um, and possible asteroid strikes 
There had also been very severe volcanic outbreaks at the end of the last ice age. In fact, during the time when the glaciers were melting, which is roughly 12,000 to about 8,000 BC, uh, there were more and more severe volcanic outbreaks than at any other time in the last 100,000 years, as, as shown by the Greenland Ice Core research that an international team of scientists is doing in, in Greenland. They can actually find little pockets of air in the ice and they drill down and they, 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 they segment off the enormous ice cores which are all very, very long, about 50 yards long or something very often. They have them in great long sheds and they have them all lined up and they, each segment slice of perhaps half an inch or so is, is a year. They can actually narrow down to a single year what happened atmospherically in that year. And they're finding now, and have been for the last 10 years, that there was a very sudden global warming um, about 9,000, between 9 and 10,000 BC, with particular, a particular date, 9,800 to 9,600. So, when I'd investigated all this for the book, The Cycles of Catastrophe, I more or less finished that book, and then thought, well, I've written three books, that's, that's enough. But, in fact, I had not made a complete book of Atlantis. And I thought, well, maybe I'd better look at the Atlantis legend again, and see if that part of the catastrophic thing can actually be expanded into a full book. Is that conceivably, I've dealt with Atlantis in the book three, the book about tribal legends, you see, there's, a, there's been lots of legends about Atlantis, and also I've written about Plato's story of Atlantis, of course. Um, but I was then just wondering, can I dare to think that having established that there was a, a planetary catastrophe about nine and a half to ten thousand BC that there was a sudden global warming within a few years according to the ice core and a sudden rise in sea levels which was probably about a hundred feet of the rise within only about 160 years I mean this is actually established now by scientific methods this is a very very rapid rise in a short time and people would have noticed it in their own lifetimes it would have been quite catastrophic for anyone living on low-lying coastal lands. And um, so, I thought, well, is this possibly going to give enough material to actually give a scientific basis to Atlantis? Up to that time, I had thought of it more as a legend, a spiritual teaching, very good as a spiritual teaching and a legend, but um, I hadn't really thought that it had all that strong a scientific basis. I had lectured on it in the past, and and said there, was, there were certainly scientific possibilities, but I hadn't realised how strong the evidence was. I'd put it forward as a, as a scientific hypothesis, but I didn't think it was in any way proved or anything like that. I decided there was enough evidence, turned to Atlantis with a view to expanding the, the, the two or three chapters that, that were at the beginning of the catastrophe book that were about it, so it's just cycling that off and making that a complete book. And I looked more closely at Plato, and um, Plato's Timaeus and Critias are in fact remarkable works. Um, the Timaeus actually, um, which is a report of a conversation between four philosophers which probably took place in about 421 BC when Plato was a, probably a youth at that time, is the story of how there was, there was going to be um, a great festival, one of the Athenian festivals, the next day. And Socrates, of course, the famous philosopher of, 
of Athens, who was a, a sort of goad and needle to everybody who considered themselves in high position and, you know, who considered themselves very important. He was always needling them and saying, well, you don't really know very much, none of us know very much, but at least I know that I don't know anything, so that puts me in a better position. That's the sort of thing Socrates would say. But he never wrote anything down. He was all by word of mouth. He used to, to sit in the agora, the great public place of debate in Athens, and the people would crowd around him, particularly young people, but people of all ages. And anyway, there was going to be one of these Panathenaea festivals the next day, according to Plato's Timaeus. And so Chrysias and Hermoxes and Timaeus and uh, Socrates uh, gathered round and uh, discussed uh, what should Socrates was due to give his usual great oration at this festival. He was in front of an enormous crowd. What should Socrates say? I mean, he'd said lots of things before, philosophically. He wanted some sort of new material. And uh, Critias, who was uh, later to become a great statesman, already known as, Critias the Younger, already known as a, a, a poet and writer, came forward and said, well, look, I've heard this tale when I was ten. It was told to me by my grandfather, who was also Critias, Critias the Elder, and he got it from Drophidas, and Drophidas got it from the, the great Solon. Now, Solon was one of the great wise, seven wise men of ancient Greece, and said to be the wisest of the seven. He was the great founder of Athenian democracy. And uh, he had, um, after founding the democratic institutions, um, he, the, he had grown up in a faction-ridden Athens, where there were lots of different groups and they all wanted power and he was the one they went to to settle it because he was a person known to be very wise and uh, to have a lot of knowledge of how to run things and so on. And so he thought it out, he set up the democratic institutions or a large part of them, but then he got so fed up with all these different factions coming to him all the time, he said, I'm going off for ten years for a tour of the Mediterranean, of the other ancient empires and countries and I'm not coming back for ten years and you just work, you'll have to sort out your own thing and if you want any more, you'll wait till I get back. And so he went off and he got to Egypt. It's usually thought to be about 571 BC he was in Egypt. Now Plutarch says that in, in his life of Solon. And um, he there went to, Egypt at that time was ruled by the Saitic dynasty, that is to say its capital was Sais in the Nile Delta and um, that, um, there was a great temple of priests there and an aged, very wise priest whose name was Sontius was one of the, the priests according to Proctus, I think it is and uh, he went there and uh, he started really, perhaps almost boasting I mean, telling the Egyptian priests of the great deeds of the ancient Greeks and, you know, the, the great flood legends and uh, all the, the ancient heroes of Greece and, Obviously, the priests got a little bit fed up with this, and they took him to one side, or Sanchez, so they anyway, took him to one side, so basically, look here, young man, or something to that effect. Uh, Sanchez was probably about 90 at that time, and um, probably so long was about 70, so he was a young man, but, for Sanchez anyway. Uh, and uh, um, you Greeks are all like children. You don't have anything that's hoary with age, that's the usual translation. You don't have any science or knowledge that's really ancient. Because, and the reason for this, is that the, the earth is periodically inflicted with great catastrophes. And this happens when the 
planets in their orbits get disturbed from their usual orbits the deviation of the planetary bodies doesn't literally necessarily mean planets but some sort of objects in, 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 that they could see in space um, because they didn't know the distinction between planets and stars in those days but anyway um, they, when the deviation of the planets from their orbits um, um, causes great disturbance and sometimes uh, and great disasters on Earth and sometimes this is inflicted by fire and sometimes by water and sometimes both and sometimes other things and you do not realise that you have w- only one flood legend that's the legend of Deucalion, the Greek flood legend but in fact there have been many uh, great floods and when the destruction is by fire it's the people on the mountain tops that suffer most uh, the people living in the highlands and when the uh, destruction is by water uh, then it's the people in the lowlands because of course the water rushes down hills and floods the, the, the lowlands and what happens every time there is this catastrophe all the art of writing is lost and you have to start again like children and you don't remember your previous achievements or your previous writings or your previous governments um, and although in legend the memory of what went before remains but you are so hard pressed uh, to, to um, just manage everyday affairs to keep alive in, in the very sparse vegetation and the terrible circumstances that follow the catastrophe but it's the most you can do to survive and you can't really preserve the memory of what went before but we in Egypt, Sanchez said, we are preserved by the Nile uh, that is when we have when catastrophe occurs, it doesn't affect us so much because we're low-lying and we don't have the um, water rushing down from the hills we don't have the not affected so much by the fiery things in the atmosphere and um, we therefore are able to preserve in our temples the writings uh, uh, the, the accounts of these catastrophes and our writings uh, in the state of Saïs go back, Sanchez told Solon, 8,000 years but a thousand years before that your state, the really ancient state of Athens was founded 9,000 years before he was telling this to Solon that is um, and it was founded with the help of Athene, whose name to us he said to, to the Egyptians is Neith and it was probably the temple of Neith that he was speaking in and there was a strong Greek community in Saïs and there was a lot of link between the Greeks and the Egyptians and um, your, your ancient Athens was founded with the help of Athene or Neith as we know her in about 9,000 years before he was speaking now that's 9571 BC which is just at the time when the Greenland ice cores and other evidence tells us that there was a very rapid rise in sea level caused by some very sudden global warming and a catastrophic eruption of volcanoes at various parts of the world probably a, a lot of dust and other debris in the atmosphere possibly the debris from a, bits of a fragmenting comet that may have been breaking up at the time and um, in general very difficult um, climatic conditions in which to, to live um, and then Sanchez went on to say you do not realise you Greeks that your really your finest hour was at that time because then the Straits of Gibraltar were navigable now this is a remarkable statement Straits of Gibraltar which of course to the Greeks was the pillars of Heracles or Hercules 
Hercules was the Roman name, Heracles was the Greek name, Philip and Heracles. Um, and um, you could then get through them easily. Um, and in t- beyond that, there is the true ocean, uh, deep flowing Okeanos, the Greeks call it the Atlantic, and it was named after Atlas. And there was then, um, before this catastrophe that occurred at that time, about 9,000 9, years before, uh, there was um, a great island situated opposite the face of, beyond, the Greek literally means outside the face of the Straits of Gibraltar, or opposite the face of. It doesn't mean 3,000 miles the other side of the Atlantic. I've checked this up with my brother who's a, a studied ancient Greek and given him the actual ancient Greek to translate. It, 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 it's not possible to, to bend the Greek to make it mean America, that Atlantis was one and the same as, as ancient America. Um, of course, you can always believe that Plato got it wrong. And that, uh, but if you, if you take it as it was written, as Plato wrote it, it can't be made to mean ancient America. It means something fairly close opposite the states of Gibraltar, not too far beyond. And Plato said there was a great... Plato, of course, was reporting this account. Uh, it was handed down to him by... Dropidas and then Critias, um, and uh, he, it was the, it, this was the account that was being put forward by Critias to give to Socrates to give at, the, at this festival the next day. And um, so, so it's really Critias saying, and Plato wrote it up. So Critias said, um, "This is what my grandfather told me when I was ten, but he, he gave me the notes that Solon brought back." Solon wanted to write an epic poem out of this and it was to be called the Atlanticos um, and he did in fact write it in rough it's certainly in a set of notes and I have these notes in my possession right I said but I also learnt it by heart when my uh, grandfather told me at the age of 10 in those days we really had to commit things to memory and of course they did in those days in a way that we can't today they had brains that seem to be capable and we know this from people like Aborigines and tribal people today they're quite incredible at committing things to memory we know that the Druids because Caesar says that they had a 20 year training and committed their teachings to memory and it was all the oral actually they did write a bit in Greek as well but never, uh, most of it was memory and they actually got very very detailed stuff in, in, in committed to memory so it's quite credible that Critias uh, could have committed this to memory, but in addition he had Solon's notes and probably passed them on to Plato. And Critias said, well, there was this great island, bigger than Asia and Libya put together. Now I've... And it was called Atlantis. The, the Greek word is Atlantidi, and I've um, examined this. And Asia and Libya, well, Asia probably meant part of Asia Minor, which is roughly modern Turkey, but it probably meant to the Greeks, mainly the western part of it. So possibly an area about the size of of France or Spain or a bit smaller than France perhaps and Libya often most books on Atlantis say that means either the whole of Africa or the whole of North Africa they also say suggest that Asia meant um, you know the whole of modern Asia as we think of it today which is certainly not it meant as a part of Asia Minor uh, but Libya probably didn't mean in as Plato was writing it um, the whole of North Africa, or certainly not the whole of Africa, because when it meant a large part of North Africa, it was written as Libya Entos, or Libya Interior, to include the interior. 
um, this phrase where Plato writes it doesn't include the word entos so it, it could simply have meant a bit of what we think of as a modern state of Libya which is next door to Egypt and it could have been just the Egyptian administrative province to the west of the Nile Delta which is not much bigger, about the same size as England or roughly that sort of dimension so Asia and Libya together did not mean a vast continental landmass it probably meant an area taken together about the size of France if you take something Asia a bit smaller than France and then add in a bit of, for, for, for the administrative province of Libya you might get an area about the size of France so we're talking about a large island but not a great continental landmass necessarily but it's clear from Plato's account that he didn't know how big it actually was he was actually giving too a vague measurement of it because he probably wanted to get out of actually saying how big it was because he didn't know and nor did Solon probably and I doubt whether even Sontius knew um, because all this account of Atlantis had been handed down over 9,000 years if we take the account literally and during that time a lot of it would have been oral transmission and only written down in the later stages and so precise measurements uh, would have been difficult to come by so probably that's why um, Plato used the phrase bigger nation of Ibico because it was a, a deliberately vague it just meant a very large island anyway according to the account this island had on it um, a, seri- a, a great kingdom um, and it was founded by Poseidon it was divided as a land in the Atlantic in the deep flowing Okeanos it was divided between the gods and Poseidon got the island of Atlantis and then then it was Poseidon had children through Clito and he had ten sets of twins and uh, uh, unbelievably ten sets of twin sons I think it was in fact even more unlikely anyway um, or was it five sets of twins and eight ten I can't remember but anyway and um, what happened was Atlas was the oldest and he got the, the main part of the, of the main island the implication, though it's not quite clear is that there was more than one island that there was a main island and then other islands in fact Plato does say that at one point so, and then Critias goes on in the account as reported by Plato and no doubt Socrates gave it in his great speech the next day uh, that, uh, that this great kingdom was divided into ten kingdoms and over many dynasties it was um, very prosperous and very great a great centre of trade more wealth than any other kingdom before or after and that that it uh, um, also had a great empire it ruled parts of Europe North Africa and parts of the great opposite continent you could get over uh, the account says the other side of the great deep flowing Okeanos the Atlantic uh, from the island of Atlantis you get to other islands and from there to the great opposite continent now I think that can only mean America I don't see how it can mean anything else people who say it means the Pacific I think that's very unlikely indeed that it could have meant that um, and people who say that Atlantis was only the island of Sierra in the Aegean it just puts the entire account of Plato the whole geography is completely incompatible with his account um, so I think it, it meant that the, some ancient Greeks knew something of America and said that the Atlanteans ruled parts of that opposite continent so they had a sphere of influence or if you like empires included bits of America 
that included parts of uh, Europe and parts of North Africa. And they then, after many uh, long periods of dynasties of rule, which could have been anything from hundreds to many thousands of years, and, um, we, the time isn't given, uh, they became corrupt and they became aggressive, they became greedy, they became... Um, they became their spiritual element, which had been very <coughs> strong in them, was lost and overlaid by materialistic qualities of greed and aggression. So, whereas uh, uh, at their prime, they cared nothing for wealth and gold and material gain, and they cared for the spirit within, they, in their latter days, they lost that, and they became overlaid with greed and ambition and aggression, so that those with the eye to see could tell that they had become unspiritual, that, they had, that the, the, the divine portion within them had been overlaid by this. But those without the eye to see, to those who didn't have this inner clairvoyance, if you like, or inner vision or inner intuition, they appeared to be just as they had been before. They appeared to be, some people have drawn parallel perhaps with the Nazis, who appeared after they became corrupt and started genocide and all that, they appeared to be just as grand as they were before, but to those who could see, they knew that things were going wrong very badly. But anyway, whatever parallel is made, Lewis Spence made this parallel when he wrote a book called Will Europe Follow Atlantis in 1942 during the height of the Nazi occupation. Um, <coughs> well, um, Plato said that um, <coughs> when they became corrupt, they gathered their empire together and when gathered together they had an enormous strength of uh, troops and ships it actually gives a, a list and account of how uh, roughly how big the army was because it details different units in the Critias, the other, the other dialogue in which Atlantis is described and they invaded uh, um, the Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar they, and um, they already ruled as far as the borders of Egypt in the south and Italy, northern Italy in the north. And they, they were... Greece, the, this was the finest hour, Sanchez told Solon, of your really ancient Athenians because they stood up to the Atlanteans and they stood at the head of a league which fought them off, defeated them. And uh, then, uh, shortly after that, uh, the, there were great earthquakes and floods uh, and the whole of your Greek army that had just defeated the Atlanteans was swallowed up in the, the earth together by implication with the, with the prehistoric Athens itself well, that implied them quite say that but then um, in, uh, at a later time it doesn't say how much later but it implies not very much later the island of Atlantis itself was swallowed up by the sea after great earthquakes and that is why the Straits of Gibraltar are not now navigable because of the great mud that was caused when the island sank. Now, looking at this account, most people have said it's a fantastic account, it can't stand up to scientific examination. But looking at the date that's given in this account, 9,000 years before Solon got the information, that's about 9,600 BC, looking at the rise in sea level, the fastest part of the rise in sea level, when the ice caps were melting into the sea, off the land, you know, Labrador, Greenland and so on, and in, in the Antarctic, was melting into the sea, raising the sea level. The fastest part of that sea level rise was, in fact, just exactly then, around 9,000, and several independent oceanographers, I've, been, I've got many scholarly articles 
out of the library and uh, explored the internet and all sorts of things. There's no doubt at all that this is by general agreement of oceanographers and even some very recent purely orthodox books on geology and oceanography point out that this rapid rise in sea level may have been the origin of the Atlantis account. They actually mention it, some of them, including Fairbridge's monumental encyclopedia of oceanography, probably the most impressive single work ever written on oceanography, about a thousand pages or more of double column, about equivalent of 3,000 pages of a normal book. Um, and that says that the, it's quite extraordinary parallel with Plato's Atlantis account that the fastest rise of sea level occurred at just this point would have flooded enormous lands. Now, it would have flooded firstly the entire continental shelves, for example, the islands of Britain, uh, um, with the 400 of the British Isles, of course, we're on the biggest one here, there's 400 altogether. And uh, we're on a peninsula, we were, uh, during the last ice age, on a peninsula, three quarters of which was flooded by this rising sea level. The British Isles are now only one quarter, roughly, the land area that this peninsula was until the end of the last ice age. So three quarters of, of what was the British peninsula, if you like, is now a sort of sunken northern Atlantis. Um, the Bay of Biscay was at least half land, so I mean that's an enormous area. Um, about a hundred mile width off the east coast of the United States uh, has now submerged and then the, the Newfoundland banks which go right way into the mid-Atlantic uh, with also above water parts of the Rockall Bank off Ireland and Scotland some way hundreds of miles into that they were, they were land and are now submerged the Azores which is possibly one of the best candidates to have been at Atlantis now nine islands were probably uh, more than twice that number of islands. Some of them joined together before the rise in, in, the, in, in the sea level. And if you take an ancient map which is printed in Professor Hackwood's Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings which shows them ten times their present land area, if you, if you believe that, then you get um, a total land area for the Azores about the same as that of southern Britain, Britain south of the Thames, four times the land area of ancient Crete that had a, a great maritime empire. So you, you get actually quite a feasible base for uh, a form of Atlantis. It would have been an archipelago rather than one big island, but even so you get a pretty impressive area of land. And then you get um, 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 possibly some of that or all of it was one big island um, and we could discuss that later. I know Edmund has some evidence on that uh, which he may tell you if you ask. But also that the Canaries were very much bigger than they are now then we have the um, uh, Madeiras were much bigger. There was a large island off the Straits, uh, well actually 300 miles southwest of, the, of Portugal, which is known as the Gorinj Bank, which doesn't now exist at all. It was about the size of Mallorca, or bigger than the Isle of Wight, a lot bigger than the Isle of Wight, um, which was completely submerged. Several other islands and seamounts and things were submerged. And the Straits, most impressively of all, the Straits of Gibraltar, which had been 60 miles long at the end of, until the end of the last ice age and only a ve um, what, mile or two wide or three miles, a very, very narrow at the narrowest point now what, 15 miles wide and only five miles long most of the land on either side of the straits has gone under so the straits were very difficult to navigate um, at the time when the ice age was ending what would have been happening was the sea level rising, washing vast masses of mud off the areas that were just being flooded into the sea 
with a very narrow straits and long straits of water 60 miles long and this mud would literally have been just as Plato said impeded progress through the straits and probably Plato although by Plato's own time in 350 BC 360 BC when he was writing this that mud would presumably have gone he was reporting a legend from much before which was probably accurate for the time it was referring to which was when the ice age the actual glaciers were melting so anyway I decided I, I I brought all this together and decided, and this became book one, which I called The Lost Epoch. The agents have now changed that to Atlantis, the, the Truth, because they think that's a better title and publishers prefer that. So that's what it's going to be called. It's, I understand that authors hardly ever decide the titles of their books. Uh, and uh, uh, so that, that, with the latest research on all that, has become book one. So now, um, just to. Uh, a few words about the more general um, picture of uh, what, what the whole series of books uh, is dealing with and uh, I've given you a few leaflets which outline this but um, so volume one then is on Atlantis and the catastrophe that destroyed it volume two then the cycles of catastrophe I've already mentioned that that deals with going through item by item the things that may have caused uh, the great disaster, you know, was it the fragmenting comets, um, writers like Kuhn and Napier and Hoyland, which I'm seeing think it was, they're very distinguished astronomers. It tends to be British astronomers that believe in this. American astronomers were put off once and for all catastrophism by Velikovsky, who they had very severe arguments and traumas with um, in the 50s and 60s, and Velikovsky used to tour the American universities. And, and uh, get audiences anything up to 50 times the size of their own professors and uh, um, and I don't, uh, I don't know if the American astronomical establishment has ever really recovered from this but it didn't affect us in quite the same way and our British astronomers have always been much more open to catastrophe theory and Fred Hoyle in particular I don't know if he's still going but uh, hopefully he is but he, he's produced a number of books in recent years with his colleague, uh, Professor Whitcomb Singh, uh, which do talk about uh, the fact there was this great comet that was fragmenting and breaking out. But the first ones to really popularise this thesis were Kuhn and Napier, uh, Victor Kuhn and, and uh, Bill Napier, who produced two remarkable books. In 1982, The Cosmic Serpent. Nobody took much notice of that. And then in... Uh, yes, come in. And in 1990, the cosmic winter. And I think they've got another one on, on the stocks now. Um, and um, um, well they pointed out the fact that there is a, uh, there are several mysterious streams of of debris. One of which is called the Torrids and appears, uh, and I think it's June and November, but particularly the end of June. And in 1908, a great mysterious object exploded over. Tunguska in Siberia, uh, 30th of June, exactly the right time to be one of the Torids, and it's now thought that this was one of the Torids, and it was one of the remaining bits of the debris. Um, and in fact, if it had exploded over Greater London, it would have destroyed the whole of Greater London. Uh, it was um, flattened an area, so something like 250,000 square kilometres, I think it was, something like that. But anyway, it was a very large uh, effect. It must have been at least 100 meters in, in um, diameter um, exploded in the atmosphere before it hit the ground so 
so it rained down bits and pieces and flattened a lot of trees. Now something like this was happening probably on a much larger scale in ancient times because there are various accounts that I haven't got time to go into now which suggest that this was happening. And it, Plato in his account of what Chrysias said um, about, you know, about Atlantis uh, he says that Sontis told Solon there was uh, a, a pestilential stream which returns after a regular number of years from heaven mm. and causes these catastrophes. I mean, that is very, very suggestive, isn't it, of uh, some kind of vagrant stream. Mm. And again, Edmund has researched this and would give you, would give you more information if you ask him, but I've also done quite a lot of research and put it into my, my book one. Um, but anyway, um, so th there's, there's that. Um, I, I went into all that and then into the idea of a big pole shift. Well, Hackwood talks about an enormous pole shift. It, the evidence I've seen suggests a small pole shift, perhaps one or two degrees, but even that would have been enough to cause rises and falls in sea level of, of uh, anything up to a thousand feet, apparently. I mean, because the Earth is so delicately balanced uh, and it, it's such on such a knife edge and it isn't quite circular, right? This is not quite, o it's not, not quite global, it's not quite spherical. It's slightly ovoid, it's wider at the equator, so if it does move, that causes all sorts of stresses and strains on the tectonic plates. And so, incidentally, does the rise in sea level. There's an extra weight of water on all the thin, ocean crustal plates. It causes all sorts of stresses and strains and movements of plates. That then causes volcanic outbreaks and vast amounts of stuff spewed out by volcanoes which cut off some of the sun's rays and prevent growth and um, cause all sorts of strains and, and adjustments and things including subsidences of the seabed uh, and if you'd had a subsidence under the Azores if it had been a big island it would have resulted in the smaller archipelago we get now so it could have been Atlantis you see there's all sorts of possibilities there well anyway in book three having dealt with all these catastrophes I've decided that I, I, I reckon that there really was a great catastrophe and, and orthodox people are coming more and more to this view now um, and perhaps I'm only slightly ahead of them here but uh, uh, enough <laughs> to make the book <laughs> to have something new in it that uh, perhaps take them another 50 years with a bit of luck to, uh, to catch up, I don't know uh, but um, then in book 3 I w um, I'm calling that The Echoes of Atlantis I change it for a time to Atlantean Echoes, Timeless Legends. But most people prefer the original title of the Echoes of Atlantis, so I'm returning to that because it suggests something. Atlantean isn't quite such a dramatic word as Atlantis, and uh, so I think I want to keep the word Atlantis in it. So, it could probably be the Echoes of Atlantis. Subtitled, Mysterious Remains, Tribal Secrets, Ageless Wisdom. And what it really is, is a book about the, these tribal legends that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and um, since I've already covered that a bit, I, I don't have to go back to that in detail. But I, I, what I then do is, is say that basically the ancient and the modern are one with these tribal legends. And if you take the Huna of Hawaii, uh, if you take the, the present, the, not many people realise there are four and a half million Mayas still going in Central America. The Mayas are not only an ancient civilization, they are very strongly going modern tribal which are being westernised very quickly but they are nevertheless maintaining their shamans I've got a book called 3,000 Years on the Shaman's Path uh, about the Mayans They're still, they still have their shamans uh, maybe 2,000 years I can't remember but anyway um, so then there's the 
the North American Indians was the Hopi of Arizona uh, and Colorado and, and um, the ho- other um, American tribals groups who teach that these ancient catastrophes <coughs> did happen but I then linked it up with their spiritual teachings and it's, it's in book three as I get on to really the inner side the inner teachings and the inner teachings and the outer teachings really are one because unless you understand the it's usually said that unless is that the inner teachings are the ones that really matter and outer teachings are superficial you know, things about what happened to the earth are relatively superficial but that's not what the tribal peoples themselves believe they think it's just as important to describe and to understand the earth and what happened to it in the past and present and the delicate balance on which the earth is, is based and they think that uh, unless you understand the earth mother and what, as they often describe it and what she's been through, Gaia the Greeks called it you can't really fully understand humanity which is on this earth and what we're doing here on the earth so I have talked about their inner teachings their teachings about healing for example teachings about intuition and dreams and the soul and how it returns to lives on earth and all that but I have linked it to the story of the planet and that's what makes my book a bit different from a lot of other spiritual books which are very good but they tend to neglect the, the planet and environment in which we live they tend to be a a lot of spiritual books which are very helpful to people on the intuitional level guides to intuition and so on and, and about you know, the spirit world and things but they often leave out the other kingdoms of the planet the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom and the planet itself um, that's where I, what I've tried to bring in which a lot of other books leave out the actual that, that's why I called it the secret story of our planet um, and then I've linked it up to the teachings of the ancient Egyptians who were very very strongly aware of the planet and everything about it and the environment in which they live and to the shamans it's not often realised that our own ancient cultures here in Western Europe had shamans as well the megalithic cultures and the druids were really in, a, in essence part of them and then there were pre-druidic shamans long before the druids who were equally important so I've linked it up with that and then in book 4 I've gone on to more recent times by which I mean from about the time of Christ onwards <laughs> and that is to say the inner teachings of the West the Gnostics uh, for example and the Grail legends and uh, all, all, the, uh, all the references we get in great literature like the Romantic movement in poetry for example you know Shelley and Wordsworth and Byron and, and so on and Keats uh, lots of references there to inner spiritual things and um, then I linked that up with um, other spiritual teachings that you get through um, for example the Templars and also the, the mystical side of the Christian church which is much stronger than is usually taught some of the great saints and mystics of the church I've linked it to Arthurian legends and Glastonbury theme and then come right up to date with everything through, from the UFO and crop circle phenomena and the significance of them and up to the present crisis of planet Earth and millennium and that's where I, where I com- complete the, the fourth book so um, the plan was to, to stop about now and give people a chance to um, well we can start the questions but also if we stop the actual talk now, people can start asking questions but also anybody can feel free to go over and order a meal if they want so I'll just um, okay well any questions on, on that then yeah
I can't hear in a sec. The question was just before you. Yeah, pestilential stream, yeah. How frequently do you reckon it occurs on the earth? Every 10,000 or every 20,000? There's several estimates. If you take the estimate of, if you take Cuban Napier's work, they say it's sort of the longest interval, the possible interval they give is about 3,500 years, and then the they imply that a shorter interval is possible, possibly down to one and a half thousand. Hoyle and Whitcomb Singh plumped for one and a half thousand. Dr. Duncan Steele, who has written a book called uh, Rogue Asteroids and uh, Doomsday Comets, which is very good, he goes for a thousand years. He's rather shorter than the others. Uh, well, I have put in my book one thousand to three and a half thousand years, which is a safe bet. But if you like, possibly. And it's not certain that it was exactly regular anyway, because it was whenever the Earth encountered the debris stream from this comet. Now, the fragmenting comet was not orbiting around the Earth, as is sometimes wrongly assumed. It was or orbiting, it was, and the, the remaining bits are still orbiting around the Sun. So therefore, it's not there all the time. It's only when the Earth, which is also orbiting around the Sun, happens to intercept with the commentary daybreak orbit. Well, this is a good question. Kluge and Napier say we've got a bit of time yet, um, possibly a hundred or two years, but, but they also point out that the, the debris is pretty small by now. Mm. Most of it's broken up into very small bits, and so the catastrophic effects would not be so bad. Hoyle and Rekhammer Singh are inclined to, uh, it might be a bit closer, and uh, we should be keep a pretty close watch. I don't know what Duncan Steele says on this, um, but the way things have gone in this century, or the last century, to uh, the 20th century, Tunguska was 1908, uh, then there was one that we now know hit in Brazil in, in 1930, um, and there was a very small one in Siberia in about 1948. Mm -hmm. We don't seem to have had very large bits other than even Tunguska was only just over a hundred meters in diameter, and um, it, so it, maybe the bits are sufficiently small that um, we, were, we won't encounter quite the same destruction <coughs> as, as, as we had before. But I think the thing, the answer probably is we don't know. But but it's as well to be careful and watchful, for, you know, for, uh, all the time and we, we will get the occasional strike or explosion in the atmosphere. There was in fact a program about a year ago about asteroids, small asteroids which hit the Earth periodically, uh, and warning that this is uh, an ever-present threat and detailing the 1908 and 1930 events, also pointing out that there was one in Arabia in 1863, which we've only just discovered. Yes. Um, yeah, another Tunguska we might get in that, but a really major one, a very big destructive one, about every hundred thousand years, sort of one that might destroy civilization. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that may just simply be convinced that some objects or smaller or dust particles. Yeah. And the problem is, is that these comets trail a whole load of debris and dust behind them. Yeah. And it's where we pass through the comet, if we pass very close behind the comet or the remains of that debris, then there's a risk of fire, fire yeah. particles. 
But if we're going through a long tail, then it's going to be smaller particles. But in their own way, they can have serious effects. Yeah. About 10,000 tons of debris from space falls <coughs> on the Earth every year. That's normal and has um, And what's stimulated the government to put 200 million pounds into research on this subject is the realization that there is quite a high centennial risk of damage now that the Earth is so heavily populated. Yeah. And therefore, it justifies, um, as they're spending 200 million pounds here, probably a lot more in America yeah. and perfectly around the world. Yeah. A lot of money is now being spent on understanding this better and also blogging and plotting the asteroids that we can pick up. Yes, so they're gradually logging more of them. What's happened is a lot of the Star Wars established by Reagan. Is, which was to have been used to, to track uh, Russian rockets coming in. Now the Cold War has been ended for, um, it's being transferred to this asteroid hunt. Uh, the same, the equipment uh, is being used, which is quite a sensible idea. Right, well, I'll, I'll, we'll stop now for a bit. Um, Plato doesn't actually say anything about survivors, but obviously there must have been some, <coughs> um, one imagines. Um, and the Egyptians knew about it because they said they had preserved it in their temple records where they kept records of all the great catastrophes of civilization, all the, all the history and catastrophes and no doubt the better times as well uh, were recorded in their temples and um, there's another, um, Crantor was the, the first a commentator on Plato who lived perhaps about 40 or 50 years after Plato um, according to Proclus in his commentary on the Timaeus, uh, Proclus says that, that Crantor, he reports, quotes a bit of Crantor, who was one of the scholarly people of Plato's academy, because Plato founded what some people regard as the world's first university, the academy, just outside Athens, and we get the word academic from it, of course. And uh, Crantor says that the, the prophets of the Egyptians still hold these things are true that, that Plato wrote and it is written on pillars in their temple and Plato doesn't refer to pillars in the time as it talks about records in the temples it doesn't refer to pillars so uh, it implies that Crantor had access to different information and uh, the, the passage in Proctor strongly implies that, that Crantor some people think it means that Crantor actually went there that's unlikely. Uh, it was probably somebody else came and gave them the information. So the Egyptians had in their records. Now that presumably means that it was written down from originally accounts of people who actually experienced, or people who's, who were reporting earlier generations who experienced these things. In the time as it says that because when these catastrophes occur, you, you occur, you lose the art of writing. Uh, you have to start again like children and you remember only vague legends of what went before so that does uh, actually I say Plato doesn't mention survivors but in that sense he does mention because these are he says the survivors <coughs> are unlettered mountaineers the survivors of the flood type of catastrophe unlettered mountaineers and people who lose the art of writing and have to go back to subsistence farming basically to survive and they remember only the vague reports of their ancestors of the catastrophes and they don't, are not able to write them down so that does mean there were survivors but whether any of these survivors actually were from the island or islands of Atlantis is a different matter 
And then Plato actually says that uh, Atlantis was swallowed up by the sea in a single dreadful day and a single dreadful night. Now if we take that actually literally, it could only mean one thing, I think, and that would be um, a great tidal wave swept over the islands, and that would probably mean some impact of a fragment of a comet or an asteroid in the Atlantic, which is quite likely that something like that did happen. Um, it wouldn't actually have swallowed up permanently the island, a tidal wave, it would have swept civilization and all humanity off the island or islands. The islands would then have, you know, re re-emerged after the tidal wave had passed by only to be swallowed up perhaps in the next few hundred years as the sea level rose um, but the actual destruction of civilization on the island could could literally have occurred in a single uh, dreadful day in a single dreadful night if it had been a tidal wave and people who say this is impossible to happen so suddenly they just don't realize what a tidal wave can do because you have a really big impact tidal waves can be hundreds of, of, of feet high and to sweep everything before them. Uh, so, in that case, to answer your question, that it could well be that there wouldn't have been a single survivor from the actual islands if that's what had happened. Everything could have been swept away. Um, Coming from a different angle, slightly, education said that there were some who knew that the catastrophe would come and uh, left, and there was a whole stream that went to Egypt. Yes. And that was sort of about 10,000. Yes, now this ties up with what Plato says that the Atlantean Empire, before the catastrophe, reached as far as the borders of Egypt, but not Egypt itself. Um, and um, so people may have got from it to Egypt, but Atlantis didn't actually, Egypt wasn't actually part of the Atlantean Empire. Um, so I think that's entirely possible. In fact, if they ruled you know, Libya, you know, as the next door area, Libya, um, there would have been presumably quite frequent contact between the, uh, the, those who were... And incidentally, the word empire is, is one that shouldn't really be used. It was used by Ignatius de Nelly in his 1882 translation of the Timeless and Critias. But de Nelly was writing at the time of the height of empire when everybody was talking about the British Empire and the Americans were just beginning to think of having an empire you know, um, the French and the, all the other empires and they were just carving up Africa at the time so the word empire was very, very fashionable but in fact it's not really a very good translation of the Greek it really means area of conquest or something much more temporary we tend to think of an empire as meaning something with permanent administration that may last for centuries whereas an hour of conquest may last only for a year or two or maybe just an incursion or something so um, um, it means an area of rule or conquest I think um, so or even, well yes um, I said it could have meant just that and well what, that's what you do after you conquer now you still have trading posts don't you? Yes, Yes, but the Greek word does imply conquest, apparently, because I, I did check that. Um, it implies that it's a sort of... Yes. We 
interest of everybody involved, which yeah. is mutually um, responsible or adaptive, really. Um, the point I wanted, have you answered the question I was going to ask about the other historians and many other historians, we've got somewhere around about 15 independent sources which also told us the same story about Atlantis. Well, I've talked about one of them just as you were coming in, that was Crantor. Crantor. Crantor, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he wasn't actually a historian, he was more of a sort of poet and literary figure and philosopher. Um, it's probably not as many as 15, but there are certainly about half a dozen or six or eight um, classical writers of considerable standing who mentioned Atlantis. And it's often said that, that all these other references come from Plato, but that's not the case. Um, it's quite clear and proclus to start with actual historians but whose work is lost the best reference is actually in Proclus where he says that Marcellus in his Ethiopic history uh, um, Historia Ethiopica or whatever which literally means history of Afri- Ethiopic meant African the history of Africa says that <coughs> Certain historians describe seven islands in the Atlantic and three more larger ones, of which one was dedicated to Poseidon, who was the sort of founding god king of, of, of Atlantis, but often said Neptune, but then Neptune is simply a translation of At this point, as if Marcellus is supporting historians who are talking about islands that still existed, but the, the, the catch to that comes in the next statement, which is that its inhabitants, inhabitants of this prodigiously great island remember the former, even greater island, which had disappeared, has disappeared, uh, which ruled over, for centuries, ruled over all the other islands in the Atlantic. And if that isn't a reference to Atlantis, I don't know what is. And it doesn't seem to be, um, uh, I mean, there's other information in that passage which shows it's not just from Plato. And also, Marcellus is quoting certain historians. And that certainly didn't include Plato, because Plato wasn't considered to be a historian, he was a philosopher, a literary figure. Though he was effectively a historian. Uh, it's clear he wasn't saying to Plato. He had access to historians whose work is lost, and we don't even know their names. There are about six or eight other classical sources um, which do mention Atlantis. Uh, the most extensive is Theodorus Siculus, Theodorus of Sicily, uh, who wrote about the time of Julius Caesar, I suppose. And he um, did said a lot about Atlantis, but he described uh, the Atlanteans as being in North Africa. And... Um, he says they fought wars against the Amazons with fierce warrior women, uh, for example, who were also in North Africa. And, and, um, he does describe an island, but it's clearly an island that still existed in his time and not one that had disappeared. And that may well be one of the Canaries or possibly even one of the West Indies. He says it was a very verdant and luxurious island. It might be Madeira, perhaps, possibly. And, um, um, but um, there's an implication that these North African Atlanteans might originally have come from islands elsewhere, but there's no actual statement. It's Lewis Spence, who reports this in detail in his history of Atlantis, believes that 
that's what Theodore meant, but this is controversial and some people say, well, he was only talking about North African. I think what actually happened is that North Africa was part of the empire, if you like, inverted commas, or area of influence of, of Atlantis, and that at the time, or just before the thinking, uh, to go back to, you know, those who survived or or who perhaps moved away from Atlantis before it sank, as you were saying, Gene, you were saying those who went to Egypt, well, obviously some of them would have gone to Morocco, which is a lot closer than Egypt. And um, so they would have, when the islands of Atlantis were submerged by tidal waves and then the rising sea level, or whatever happened, um, those who uh, were in the uh, continental nearby areas, like Morocco or Spain, Portugal, um, the West Indies or whatever, would have survived, obviously. And so, th therefore, the word Atlanteans got transferred from the Atlantic islands to the areas where the Atlantean Empire had been. In fact, the Romans called, this isn't generally known, but the Romans actually referred to the Spaniards as Atlanteans well into classical Roman times. Um, and Portuguese have extremely strong legends of Atlantis and they regard themselves practically as Atlanteans. Uh, they, they, they rule these laws, of course, today. And the Spaniards have the Canary Islands, which may be more remnants of Atlantis. Um, I think we have to... Um, it's an area where it's impossible to be precise, but if you take all the classical references together, I've mentioned then Theodore, Siculus and Marcellus, and the other certain historians, but there's about half a dozen others. They, some of them are clearly dependent on Plato, and they're just reporting what Plato said. Um, others are clearly finding information from elsewhere. Crantor, as I said, talked about pillars, which Plato doesn't mention, probably had independent information. Um, and then we have a very interesting statement by Claudius Elianus, who wrote a book called On the Nature of Animals, and he was actually a Roman writer, not a Greek writer, writing all around the 1st or 2nd century AD. And uh, he, he uh, is actually describing animals. This is a, a book, of book of nature, you know, um, naturally, rather like sort of David Dimbleby or something like that. Uh, um, and uh, it's... Um, um, it's really a description of the different types of animals, but at one point it gets on to seals, which he calls rams of the sea, which obviously means seals. And just in a passing comment, he says, the people of the shores of the ocean report, or reported in former times, that the kings of Atlantis wore around their foreheads the badge of the the male rams of the sea and the queens of Atlantis wore the badge of the female rams which is stands to reason I suppose and these were seals it's been speculated there might be monk seals a large type of seal uh, and here's a passing reference then there's a few more lines about Atlantis under that saying how great Atlantis had been and you know, a few other things and that it got destroyed and so on but this is a detail that's not in Plato it's a detail by a very scholarly writer writing on a totally different subject as a passing reference he didn't stop and say ah, I'm now going to get on to Atlantis this is a controversial subject for those of you who, who believe in it here's a, a, a bit for you and he didn't say any of that he just assumed 
that his readers would know about Atlantis and would believe that it had existed and he just said the kings of Atlantis wore this badge and the queens wore that badge and when they, you know, this is reported by the people of the shores of the oceans which probably means the people on the coastal areas of Portugal and Spain and um, North Africa so he'd obviously done some research and got some folklore from the people living on the coast of the Atlantic so that's really interesting so that's the sort of thing that's most convincing where you get passing references that uh, if not somebody setting out to make a point he had no interest in mentioning Atlantis he had nothing to sell no axe to grind he's simply talking about animals um, so you have a few more references like that you have um, in Alexandria you have Marcellinus in a passing reference another purely passing reference it was one of the scholars Am uh, Ammonius Marcellinus Roman writer he said the intelligentsia of Alexandria which was the most scholarly city of its time has a great library of course um, all um, believed um, as a fact uh, that it was a former existence and the destruction of Atlantis he says and then he says, and the, and the possibility that whole areas of land can sink into the sea, or that, that, that uh, you know, that whole areas of land can move and uh, are moved by earth forces and so on, or words to that effect. So there's another passing reference, uh, which is very interesting. And that's clearly not, uh, not dependent on, it's obviously he knew about Plato, but he also knew, he was supporting the opinion of the scholarly people of Arizona. <coughs> so you have about, about another five or six, um, references like we know that somebody called Hellenicus actually wrote an entire book about 70 years before Plato and it was called Atlantidae which is the Greek word meaning Atlantis uh, we, unfortunately this book is entirely lost uh, we have none of the text at all all we have we do know that it was actually a history of the daughters of Atlas and the word Atlantis Atlantidae actually means daughter of Atlas and so it wasn't actually a history of the island of, of Atlantis but it was a history of uh, the daughters of Atlas but it does apparently, it did, we know from one report of the book from another classical writer that it did mention islands far to the west you know that uh, obviously in the Atlantic it did mention that in passing, it may have mentioned it in more detail but we just don't know because we haven't got the text but it was principally a book about the daughters of Atlas incidentally this gives, gives us a reason why it was called Atlantis apparently Solon called it Atlantis because his poem was called the Atlanticos uh, but that was purely a Greek invention that name it's not what the Egyptians called it and it's certainly not what the Atlanteans called it um, because Plato says that, we, that he had invented Greek or Solon had invented Greek names so that the Greek readers could understand the account and what do you call a land of ancient great heroes what would we call it if we were talking about a mythical almost otherworldly, very ancient prehistoric land which got destroyed well a very good uh, um, name would be um, Daughter of Arthur wouldn't it or something like that because Arthur's our great mythical king um, the daughters of Atlas were the ones who gave birth in mythology as reported by Diodorus Siculus to the great heroes and men of renown of ancient times and if it, this appears in the Bible in Genesis where it says the sons of, much the same account it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were found begat great heroes and so on men of renown 
almost the same wording as in Diodorus actually in the Bible what do you therefore call a land if you want to say it was a land of great heroes? Well, obviously you, you call it a daughter of Atlas because they, the daughters of Atlas were those who begat the great heroes so that's why the Greeks invented the word Atlantidi for this ancient land it, it's nothing more than an invention of the Greeks and Plato admits that not the original word for it at all um, we don't know what the original word was um, some people say that Atlantis comes from Atl, which means water in, in ancient Quesha, which is the ancient language of the Incas, in pre-Incas. Well, that may be so. There are lots of theories that <coughs> might be connected to that. But anyway, to answer your question, yes, there are these classical references. And they're about uh, the Thelonicus, the Solon's own account, a poem which was called Atlanticos. I haven't yet found whether any of the fragments of Solon's poems that now exist mention Atlantis or whether the Atlantis one is completely lost. Edison Sykes says that one of them does exist which mentions Atlantis but I haven't managed to track it down yet. The connection between the Atlas mountain and Atlas who held up the world. Yes, well clearly that is, um, um, that is definitely um, connected. Um, Atlas was the great sort of archetype, he was one of the titans, wasn't he, one of uh, archetypal heroes. If you read the story of the War of the Titans, it reads very much like um, great, great, uh, at one point, great thunderbolts were thrown to the earth in that account, which rather suggests something like David from space or something. It's clear that some catastrophe was happening if you read the story of the War of the Titans, if you read in Robert Graves' Greek myths, for example. Um, no doubt that something very dramatic was happening and Atlas was one of those. Uh, yes, that, that was a transference. Um, it, it's known that the earliest Greek writers like Hesiod um, actually put Atlas on, on, uh, um, on Tenerife in the Canaries. Um, and uh, Mount Tede, T-E-I-D-E, is probably the original Mount Atlas on Tenerife. Um, but it got transferred because the Greeks lost their ancient knowledge of the Atlantic. They had known a lot, largely from the Phoenicians and the pre-Phoenicians, the Carians and others. They probably knew from them uh, a great deal about the Atlantic. They lost that knowledge because if you remember there was a Greek Dark Age. There was, a great, uh, there was the Great Age of the heroes of Troy, uh, which seeded Troy was probably about 1250 BC and there was the Mycenaean period, you know, Agamemnon, Achilles and all the rest of it, you know, and, uh, Ulysses and the Odyssey and all this was a very great civilization in, in southern Greece called the Mycenaean which was about contemporary with the ancient Cretan one but then it, it got destroyed now this may have been partly to do with cometary debris it may have been to do with other catastrophes and earthquakes or it may have been conquest or a bit of both or a bit of all of those um, but for, for one reason or another, between about 1150 and 800 BC, there was a Greek Dark Age and we know very little. And this would be one of the periods that Plato talks about where the art of writing was lost and, and uh, the Greeks had to start again like children. In fact, it wasn't quite lost because we know from Linear B, which has been translated from Crete, that um, the Greek that reappeared uh, after 800 uh, BC was did have some quite a bit in common with the earlier Mycenaean writing. 
but it was very largely lost, very little. There's no Greek writings that we know of during that period, but this was one of the dark periods, the catastrophe periods. Um, and uh, so it, you start up again in 800, and that, that's, it's during that dark period that the Greeks lost all their oceanic knowledge, their knowledge of the ancient Atlantic and everything. Um, and when they started again, they had only the haziest idea of anything beyond the Straits of Gibraltar. And um, Atlas, Mount Atlas, having been somewhere in some island in the Atlantic, possibly in even on Atlantis itself, um, on the Zores or wherever that was, then got transferred probably to Mount Tede in the Canaries, just off the coast of Africa. And then in later Greek writings, you see Mount Atlas as being the, the Atlas mountain range in Morocco, where it now is. actually talks about that and he talks about Lake um, now what was it Lake Tritonis and the Tritonis Marsh and the Amazons and the Atlanteans fought their war between uh, uh, around that area around this marshy lake and I think the Amazons were the ones who lived on an island in the, in the marshy lake if I remember right but it may be the Atlanteans anyway there's definitely all sorts of references to lakes and things in Sahara in ancient times yes no doubt about that
Uh, no, is the short answer to that question, but certain things have been found which that they don't have an inscription on them saying Atlantis. Um, could be Atlantean, and notably some um, some, some <coughs> steps or parts of a wall cut into a mountainside on the Ampere Seamount uh, in the the series of seamounts known as the Horseshoe Seamounts, about 300 miles west of the Straits of Gibraltar, found by a Russian oceanographic exploring vessel, the academician Petrovsky, in 1974. Uh, that was reported in the Telegraph on the front page in 1977, after a three-year gap, because the Russians... The background of this is the Russians were not very keen on this being known, because what they were actually doing was finding sites for their nuclear submarines to rest on. Uh, submarines can't go down more than 200 feet, not normal military ones, without being crushed by the water pressure. They can't just sit on the seabed two miles down or there wouldn't be anything left of them. They'll have to sit on a seamount that's not far from the surface if they want to rest somewhere. So they were trying to find places for the rest uh, so that they could not use their propellers and not be heard or detected very easily. And this was part of the whole nuclear confrontation. Of course, the NATO, ha NATO has a naval base in the Azores, you, you may know, yeah. and the, the Russians want to keep an eye on that. Um, in fact, some people believe that where they found these remains was actually in the Azores, but if so, they didn't admit it. They said it was on the Ampere Seamount. It probably was on the Ampere Seamount, but anyway. They did take a series of photographs, of which I've got some reproductions uh, in a book, um, and I met Edgerton Sykes, who was the one who had the photographs smuggled out of Eastern Europe, uh, when he spoke to our Wessex Research Group in the year it was founded in 1980. Edgerton Sykes was then, and until his passing in 1986, probably the greatest English-speaking Atlantologist alive, and he'd written about two million words on that, I think. And he then gave us a lecture in July 1980, and I still got the tape, and, and he reported this find it was just then becoming better known and said he thought it was remnants of Atlantis at 350 feet down so at the time of the ice age it would have been above water because the sea level has risen by at least 425 feet so it does seem to be evidence that um, mankind was living on those islands that are now submerged that's what one would assume anyway the actual thing uh, there's a really interesting thing is that it just it's, it's just common sense that Atlantis must have existed because we know all these islands were above water and we know that human humanity lives wherever there's dry land particularly on islands which are usually um, fairly in that area they're, they're very much tropical almost subtropical islands with good good crops and everything there would have been nice warms ocean currents and so on it's obvious they were going to live there we also know that um, remains of human settlements are almost completely obliterated by being submerged because they've explored exhaustively the continental shelves of America and Europe and they found they know for a fact that human settlements were there they must have been American Indians and European and they found lots of things like elephant's teeth which survive apparently fairly well being submerged for long periods but they've not found uh, anything virtually no remains human settlement, although they know they must have been there because they simply get dissolved and covered up by all the, the mass of, of sediment and dissolved by the pressures of the seawater and everything and the currents and 
you just can't find the name. So the fact that you find these stone steps, stone structures like that might just survive and obviously did in that case. So that's the nearest to a remnant. Um, also off the Azores they found a, a single a link of a copper chain this is reported by Patterson in his book Atlantis and Atlantic um, which may or may not be really ancient but I've not got information about how old it was also there's what's called the Tartessos ring which has ancient writing on it which may be nobody knows quite how ancient but um, at the mouth of the river Guadalcovera in southwest Spain uh, there's um, a silted up area that was once an island and is now connected to the mainland because it's all got silted up and a certain distinguished German professor uh, whose name I think was Schulzen in the early part of this century before all the German archaeologists were captured by the Nazis and, you know, to, to, to Nazi propaganda digs uh, in the early part of it he, he uh, did excavations um, and um, found this ring he didn't find the, the fabled ancient city of Tartessos which some people believe was part of the Atlantean you know, empire on, in Spain um, he found this ring but the ring contains lettering which is very similar to ancient lettering in other parts of Spain and also in North Africa and, and um, one scholar uh, who wrote a book called Atlantis in Andalusia, a name of Eleanor Wishaw, believes that there was a whole culture which she called the Libby Tartessian, which is, in other words, North Africa and into Spain, was a very ancient culture which dated back to Atlantean times and had this ancient writing. Um, this inscriptions we find all over North Africa and Spain or parts of. So, you could say that's a remnant from the Atlantean period if not Atlantis itself um, I think it's Strabo that says that the Tartes people of Tartessos at the time he was writing which was about the time of Christ had written records going back six or seven thousand years which would take you back to six or seven thousand BC but not quite as far back as Plato's nine and a half thousand but uh, maybe they went back further but we don't know about it no. but for what it's worth um, Eleanor Whistle, who was a very distinguished archaeologist and she was directress of the Anglo-Spanish School of Archaeology based on Seville in southern Spain in the 1920s and 30s she thought that the great um, hydraulic and other harbour were, uh, massive stone block remnants that were found at various places like Huelva and Seville and so on in southern Spain were in fact of Atlantean period and she also thought that the um, excavations uh, um, that the, the remnants of metalworking cut out of the banks of the Rio Tinto which is in southwestern Spain all along the Rio Tinto which is the river that goes up from the remnants of Tartessus or where Tartessus might have been uh, that that was evidence of metal working back to about Atlantean times too there's now um, metal working which at one point used to be assumed to go back no further than about, about three or 4,000 BC has now been traced back as early as 8,500 BC in Iraq on the border with Iran there's a place where they put it back as far as that that's hand um, cold hammered copper, copper working 
in Chattaroyuk it's back to seven and a half thousand. Um, um, sorry? Yes, but that's not metalworking, that's iron ore. That, that's getting of... It, yes, it, it, it's not... It's... Um, what's the word? It's, uh, it's getting coloured pigments out of the, uh, out of the oxides of the iron, but it's not actually smelting iron. Uh, it's it, a very rich... One of the richest mineral areas in the world. But like the Rio Tinto River yeah. area, up beyond the Rio Tinto, the whole the Rio, Rio Tinto company, yeah. the whole area, this is one of the major sources of... That's insane, that's what I... All that yeah. 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 But, but what you're talking about with the Vars is in South Africa, yeah. that uh, is red ochre, which was used as a pigment for dyes and road and, and things. And and that goes back possibly as far as 400,000 BC, the use of red ochre, because they found uh, this uh, remnants, very small remnants of this, going back, uh, well, one authority believes in South Africa it goes back that far, 400,000. Uh, uh, certainly 40,000, as you say, anyway. Um, no doubt that that. But the whole Atlantic culture, incidentally, which is known to scholars as the maritime archaic, and to slightly more romantic writers as the lost red paint people and there was a satellite program about it a year or two back and they are pre-American Indian they're on the eastern American coast and up into Labrador and Canada and they're almost identical in the remains they left to the people of Brittany and Scandinavia and parts of the British Isles and they all use this red ochre and um, this is an entire culture that's completely lost and it's dated back to about 7,500 BC or earlier, they don't know how much earlier. It basically, it's a transatlantic culture. They almost certainly got across the Atlantic. Don't forget that uh, until the end of the last ice age, the ice came down as far as Bristol and the River Thames. Most of England was completely permanently covered by ice. Well south of that, down to the Straits of Gibraltar, the Atlantic was covered by enormous blocks of pack ice floating around. Gigantic icebergs, rather bigger than icebergs, enormous blocks, square miles large, many square miles in area, floating around in the Atlantic. They were effectively islands of ice. In addition, there were far more actual physical islands, as I said earlier, you know, at least twice as many as ours, much larger, several other, lots of other islands, in fact, that don't now exist at all because they've been submerged by the rising sea level. There were islands are stepping stones across the Atlantic and what with those and the enormous ice flows, it wasn't difficult to get across the Atlantic in a canoe. You'd just get from one island to an ice flow and then from that to the next island and then to another ice flow and so on and you were there. You were in, uh, and these ice flows, they now realise, got down as far as the Straits of Gibraltar in latitude. They were actually in, during the Ice Age. So the Atlantic was largely either land or ice. In fact, a good percentage of the Atlantic was solid either in the form of ice or land. Uh, so it wasn't a giant single continent. The idea of the lost continent of Atlantis is not true. The laws of isostasy rule that out. Uh, that's basically Archimedes' laws of water displacement. Well, that's one of the reasons why the Gulf Stream didn't reach non-Europe because of all these ice blocks in the way and, um, and extra islands and ice flows in the way. But what they think happened was the Atlantic conveyor warm water current switched off 
and was off during the Ice Age and it switched on again creating the Gulf Stream because of something, we don't know why about between 12 and 9,000 BC it switched on and off several times in a halting sort of way and kept on changing its mind, switching off again and on again and we know this from the ice cores and then by about 8,000 BC it was permanently on so we had the Gulf Stream and then we had the warm Northern Europe, we had the warm warmer in North America though not Canada so much it's a bit warmer than it was but mainly Europe well exactly uh, this is what this is what made possible one western civilization now this is a real if you like the secret story of our planet is a secret underwater current it's the Gulf Stream it's much bigger than the Gulf Stream that we normally think of it, was a, it goes right along with the bed of the Atlantic very very slowly they reckon that the whole of this current which goes in a loop round from the Pacific up to the off Greenland back down again to the Pacific takes 2,000 years to do that so the bit of water that's now um, say of Greenland last time it was there was in the time of Christ that's how slow the current is of water that's now um, say of Greenland last time it was there was in the time of Christ that's how slow the current is well I've already put it in my first book yeah. it's the latest bit I wrote was the first it counts chapter 2 of the first book I tend to write the later chapters first and the earlier chapters last. The original question was the question about why haven't we found remains? And most people are locked onto the idea of the sea level rose by 450 feet, which is true. But what is not generally realised is that the land itself has either risen or sunk by a very, very much larger margin of that. And the best example is the areas of Canada and Scandinavia, which were covered in ice during the Ice Ages. And, for example, northern Scandinavia, which would have had ice probably a mile thick or more on it, um, that land has actually rebounded by at least one kilometre for the associated reporting. And that's hard old crust. Um, exactly the same in Canada. Um, if you look at the uh, Finland, for example, Finland has gone up by about five feet in the last hundred years. Mm. So if we say for about um, a thousand years, fifty feet, um, and back five hundred feet and ten thousand, but it's slowing down now. But it's very important to realise that although sea level may have risen by four hundred and fifty feet, we know that large blocks of hard crust have moved by one kilometre vertically upwards from the ice that we move. Mm-hmm. we have four bulges as well, they call it four bulges, and the ice pushes land down, it pushes other land up mm-hmm. close to where the ice is. And if you imagine the skin of a rice pudding, and you have a mouth running on top of it, it would mm-hmm. bounce up and down, but rather like the earth's crust. Mm-hmm. And one of the suggestions is that the ocean itself, the deep ocean, um, has in fact, um, instead of going up, with the increased weight of water and tectonic movements, we've seen movements in the earth crust by as much as four kilometres in certain very fragile parts of the oceans, particularly on the area of the Azores. So if there was an island, for example, a big island,
circumstances is, then part of it will be maybe 11,000 feet below sea level, and even other part will be about 6,000 feet below sea level. There'll be a tremendous amount of movement of the landslides, slips, soil, or volcanic material moving. And so it'd be very, very unlikely to find any buildings that all be covered in silk and landslides and other material, particularly those buildings that have been built, as we hear, in the, on the end of a plain in a low area. Uh, where the mountains around would have probably slipped down, slipped and slip, 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 covered all the way around, like Pompeii was completely covered by the volcano. <coughs> so, the very fact that the land itself has moved so much, and we know that for sure now, means that uh, we have to dig very deep under the sea to find any physical evidence of buildings and structures. But there's another interesting point that Nigel pointed out to me, and that is that. Uh, we know that in the region of the St. Peter and Paul Rocks, which are between West Africa and the Amazon River, there was also a big island, and that was shown on the Pretty Ray map, uh, which is a, 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 a famous Turkish animal that we've managed to get hold of with a very ancient map, which had been put together from much earlier times, and the subject of a, a book by Hathwood. And what we're looking at there is not just one, but several islands between the Amazon and West Africa, which means that during the Ice Age, and way back the last 60,000 years, it would have been extremely easy to island hop from Africa to South America. And I believe that's a very, very significant significant. Yeah, so this idea uh, um, is a very interesting one that I've explored in some detail in my first book, the idea that Atlantis could have been actually that, that the main area of land could have been rather further south than, than is usually considered. Plato, the one or two clues in Plato's account, he, he talks about it as the island under the sun, so there's two crops a year, that it's very, very um, fertile and so on. And talks about palm trees, coconuts. The Greeks, incidentally, knew nothing about coconuts, and yet it's in Plato's account, not under that name, but it clearly couldn't be anything else than a coconut. He also says they had elephants on the island. But of course, there were elephants in Aegean and America, so that doesn't mean all that much. But uh, hot and cold springs, well, they have got those on the Azores. But uh, um, red, white, and black rock, that's on the Azores. But a lot of the description is of, of a semi tropical island, and if not actually tropical. And um, the, this island that Edmund's talking about is, is on this Pierre East map, which was discovered in the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul. In 1519, I think it was, um, belonged to the Admiral Pyrrhus, and was obviously based on much more ancient maps. And certain writings on the maps suggest they were made in Alexandria uh, about the time of Christ or before, um, and based on even more ancient maps. The Alexandrians compiled them from even, from even more ancient maps. And they do show uh, this, amongst other things, um, this quite large island, possibly again, about the size of the south of England, the south of the Thames in area, something like that, um, um, midway between West Africa and Brazil. And there's one, if that is so, that it was an island, there's one remnant there now, and it's the Gaunt, Peter and St. Paul rocks, which exist there now, and there's practically hardly an island, there's many rocks. Cape Verde are some hundred miles to the north, some few hundred to the north. But Another thing is that there was a, a famous oceanographic expedition in 1947-8 um, 
commanded by Pettersson, one of the most famous oceanographers of his day, Swedish oceanographer, and they took um, some soundings about 450 miles to the west of the West African coast as they went down, and five cores in particular showed a remarkable find, which was some freshwater diatoms that were on the Atlantic seabed, close to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and um, in the original report which I've got of the Journal of the Albatross, which I managed to get through the library eventually, um, the principal man who studied these findings was a, a professor who lectured exclusively on the subject of diatoms. That was his entire subject. He was a diatomologist at Stockholm, I think it was. And uh, he, he said that it was so extraordinary finding this bank of freshwater diatoms. It's almost as if they must have come from freshwater lakes. But he doesn't given the, the academic reaction if he talked about Atlantis, you know, because it's regarded as a way out thing in academics. He probably didn't dare to mention it. But then when he actually studied it long, he got together with another, this time an entomologist who studied sort of deep sea insects and you know, that sort of thing, called um, René Malaise. And uh, together they studied it for ten years and announced in 1956 that uh, at least one of these um, cores possibly all five, showed evidence of diatoms that must have come from a freshwater lake on, which is now on the Atlantic seabed, some two miles down. Six thousand feet is, is one and a fifth miles. I think this was more than that. I think this was two miles. Uh, 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 more like 10,000. I, I don't know. Do you remember the figure 6,000? I thought it was 6,000. Yeah. I may be wrong, but yeah. Malay's work is terribly important because Malay's absolutely yeah. convinced that the Azores were above sea level and that area which you were referring yeah. to of the West Coast of Africa. Anyway, he says. Yeah, Malay said. Yeah, Malay said. Well, yes, he said 10 to 12,000 years ago. It must have been. Now, if, if that is correct, and it's been a subject of controversy ever since, there was a controversy in American, well-established American magazine Science, and there were a series of letters went to and fro. I've got the, the, the I've got the issues concerned, and um, the the principal man, the diatomologist, was called Colby, K-O-L-B-E, and he he insisted that they couldn't because it was a com- one of the cores was a complete bank of freshwater data. It wasn't mixed with saltwater data. Had it been mixed with the oceanic variety, you would have expected it could have just drifted from the African continent, from the, the river estuaries. But they only have a complete, unadulterated bank of freshwater data, fossils of them, unmixed with oceanic. It's a virtual impossibility, apparently. This could have drifted 450 miles from the le- nearest coast without getting mixed with the oceanographic ocean salt water diatoms uh, and so their conclusion was that this must have been uh, um, a lake that was on dry land and that it, uh, that it had sunk down by that amount a mile or two yeah there's a similar very similar situation in Kurdland which is extremely yeah. in the Indian Ocean not far from Australia a very large block of land is now frozen up and down about five times in the last many years by 6,000 feet each time almost now whereas most of the claims by Atlant- Atlantis writers to you know supposed proofs of seabed only on the surface like for example the supposed sand on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge that's been explained by other, other means this one has not yeah, yeah, that's all right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, as I was saying, uh, this this um, freshwater diatom thing, uh, it's, although some oceanographers have challenged it, they've not disproved it. And although you will see in orthodox textbooks that it's been explained away, you will see in other other books that it hasn't been. And, and I know from all the articles I got that it hasn't been satisfactorily explained. Uh, I know the orthodox people would like to explain it because you see, uh, if you take it as having been freshwater lakes that were above water at the end of the last ice age, you've got to explain how uh, that area could have sunk by one and a quarter to two miles, whatever it is. It, it would require a great catastrophe. So what you're doing is you're actually necessitating a catastrophe to explain it, which is what the orthodox people don't like to envisage, and, uh, and hence the great resistance to this. But at the moment, I'm putting in my book that it is, um, while it's not actually proven, because it's still a matter of controversy, at least there's a very good case for um, there having been this much subsidence at that point. Now, if this is so, then you get a, a maybe quite a large size of Atlantis, substantial Atlantis, in the, in the equatorial Atlantic, more or less on the equator between West Africa and Brazil. And that might help to explain why there are so many legends of Atlantis in Brazil itself. In the, you know, amongst the Tupi tribe, for example, of northeast Brazil, you have a legend they came from an island that sank. I put this in my third book. Uh, there's a lot of legends that tie up with Atlantis there. Not only the North American Indians, but the South American Indians. <laughs> so, um, it, if there had been such an island, it could have made, as Edmund said, easy to get across the Atlantic at that point, and there would have been a, probably a frequent trade. And that's where the, t the currents take you anyway. If you go down the West African coast, down to about Sierra Leone, and then just sit on the current, you end up off Brazil, because that's, that's where the currents take you. <laughs> and no, there's no doubt at all that some ancient Phoenician and other ships got there, because they found the remains. It's just that people don't like admitting that that could have happened. Yeah. Three, three uh, West African fishermen got bored in a storm mm -hmm. three years ago, yeah. and, and ended up um, on the South American coast. That's how yeah. Oh yes, it would. It's now fifteen hundred miles. It would have been a lot less than that because of the continental shelf. So you're probably talking about thirteen hundred miles, and then islands in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And they found a settlement, I think it may be in one of your National Geographics actually, Michael, that the, the, um, in northeast Brazil somewhere, haven't they, that uh, some people think it's 50,000 years old now. Uh, yes, they found cave paintings that yeah. represent, uh, fairly similar to some African cave paintings. Yeah. They represent the, the battles between the, the tribes that there and the, and the Mongoloid types that came in um, down from the north. Yeah. So I think, that, and of course, Thor Iredal did it in Ra, Ra 2, he didn't quite make it in Ra 1, but in Ra 2, where he got the, the rigging right, he took the advice of the Amara Indians of, of Lake uh, Titicaca, he didn't take the advice for the first one, he, for the second one he got a crucial further rope that tied up the back end so it didn't break off, and he actually got successfully across the Atlantic in his raft on Ra 2 in 1970-ish and he got to the West Indies, well, if he'd gone a bit further down, he would have got to Brazil, if he'd started from somewhere like Sierra Leone, he would have got to Brazil. 
so it can be done uh, and we know that um, enormous canoes possibly a hundred feet long transporting at least forty people each sailed for distances of something like two thousand five hundred miles across the Pacific because some of the islands are that far apart and yet they were inhabited by Polynesians and that's the only way they could have got there and if they can go 2,500 in canoes in the Pacific they can easily go 1,300 in the Ice Age Atlantic I think uh, particularly if there's islands in the middle so it's the two lots of 700 or two lots of 650 miles and then there may have been other islands too which might break it up even further so uh, it's I think what we're finding is that there was a great ancient maritime culture and it's best described in a remarkable book by Professor Hapgood called Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings and this is all a book that brings together all these ancient maps and shows you know, uh, that there must have been a great seafaring culture before 4000 BC and no doubt it must be before then and We've been looking at Luigi's Australian origin originally 
and connected with the Aborigines. Uh, but I didn't see the program. I'm waiting till they repeat it, then I'll watch it. Yeah. Yes, I did set that. I did. Set, uh, that is, there will have been videoed now. By, um, but I suspect that it's just a, since it's Channel Five, which tends to repeat old programs from satellite channels. I suspect it's a repeat of one I've already got from satellite. But I don't know. I'm waiting. Yes, yes. Well, let's hope it isn't just a repeat. It might not be. Yes, but we'll soon find out. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to say that you know that I'm a particular fan of Christian O'Brien's in a detailed survey of Atlantis, which is uh, one of the greatest exploration geologists of centuries. We spent seven months in his office. He has produced a detailed survey of the island of the Sultan in his by raising the north coast by 6,000 feet and the south coast by 11,000 feet. And we have an island exactly as described by Plato. Uh, with this marvelous plane, and in particular, the 16, what would have been a 16,000 feet volcano, Pico, right back at the back of that plane, just as it is described and shown in many of the South American pictures of the Aslan Island mm. and our ancestors. And bearing in mind what the sea temperatures were during the course of the Ice Age, with that southerly aspect, an island that on the site of the Azores, would have been a marvellously uh, place to be at that particular point in time from a climatic point of view. And they would have had their two crops a year and they would have had uh, everything as described uh, in the text. So personally I believe that um, um, we have the evidence, although we could use a lot more evidence from more freshwater data yes. understanding of what these sea biscuits are. And we know we've got these sandy beaches at um, 6,000 feet down, which is the only possible explanation for them is that uh, the land has sunk. Um, I think that's pretty well established. The only thing is we do have this lovely word, turbidity currents, all the time. This will say if you find freshwater diatoms or sand at any depth, you try and say, well, that's true. And all those turbidity currents, in other words, there are these extraordinary water currents under the ocean that push them all over the place and uh, allow scientists to the sand has actually been explained uh, in an alternative way um, by the uh, it was originally discovered I think about 46, 47 I've got the original article so that's why I got the original National Geographic from you the very first one I got which was this um, I can't remember the name of the oceanographer now but anyway one of the principal American oceanographers and he said in that first article from 47 or 8 that uh, either the seabed has risen too, too uh, has sunk too miles or the sea level has risen by that amount and it's uh, either, either possibility is startling but he was actually talking not about the Atlantic there but about an area just off the Newfoundland bank of Canada I think because he said that's before they got to the Atlantic but anyway he, he does he says the sand must mean that it was on land in the first articles but then later on, in his later articles on oceanography in the 50s and early 60s, he explains it in a different way. He says there are uh, other ways in which the sand could have been produced. So, um, whereas I used to quote the sand as the size of thing, I'm a little bit cautious about that now. I mean, it may be that it's not been fully explained, but at least the mainstream oceanographers of, you know, since about 1955 believe it has been explained. Um, but there are other things that haven't been explained. I mean, like, like for example, in Zirov's book, Atlantis, there's this coral that's been found on the land. Coral, 
definitely only grows down about 30 feet down from the surface and doesn't yeah, it doesn't grow lower than that because there's no sunlight, as you say. So how that coal got um, on the middle and it was two miles down is a genuine mystery. <coughs> and the tackle too. And the tackle well that's been argued to and fro for, for about the, since 1912 when Termio first announced it that, that it showed it must have been a, a volcano that ejected less than 15,000 years ago and then sank below the sea. It's magma that comes down yeah. into the sea yeah. and it takes a set theory to dissolve. That's right, yeah. And it's right. yeah. undissolved tacolite. And so the theory is that that volcanic material landed on land which was above sea level. Yeah. Uh, so 12,000 years ago the volcano would have been discharging onto land that was above sea level. That's what Tanya argued and a number after him. It has been challenged by um, other writers since um, some say it could have been underwater volcanoes and that is probably the most commonly held view today that, 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 that there's so much coming up from underneath with the, uh, the seafloor spreading and, and um, uh, you know where, where it forces the magma up in, in the mid-Atlantic ridge which is the, the great fault which created the Atlantic in the first place and pushed the continents apart you know. Um, so some people think, and in, in the revised edition, the English edition of Otto Mook, that's what it says, it says that it's been explained away by underwater volcanoes and Peter Tompkins edited that and put that note in. Um, but um, others still say that that's not an adequate explanation, it must have been about water because they, they based their research on what happened in Montpellier in 1902 when there was two streams of volcanic lava and one stream went underwater and cooled in a different way and didn't look the same as the tacolite that was found on the landscape. Then another one cooled on land and they found that the tacolite at the bottom of the land was more similar to that which had stayed on land and cooled on land and therefore it must have been a volcano above water. But you see, even if it was that, it doesn't prove it was a great continent. It might have been just an island, one of these islands that got submerged by the rising sea level and it might have been a small island, a volcano on a small island. When you look at the, the quality much larger archipelago or possibly even as one big island or one big island and several smaller ones. Um, if we could ever get real proof of that, that would be very, you know, uh, of the big island. There's no doubt at all of the substantial archipelago. We definitely know there must have been something corresponding to Atlantis because we know what was above sea level in the last ice age and that included enormous areas of continental shelf, very substantial archipelago of islands that don't now exist. But what we don't know is whether there's anything corresponding precisely to Plato's account of a big island bigger than Asia put to, and Libya put together, or the size of France, though that is it's unlikely it was that large. O'Brien's island is, is a bit smaller than that. It's not as big as France, is it? It's, 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 it's about between France and Britain, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, 
I, I think that O'Brien puts the best possible case that can be put for it, if that could ever be actually proven by, uh, <coughs> by more cores being examined and taken, uh, then that would be very interesting indeed. We've got 30 cores, which we just need to go and look in the, yeah. where those cores are, and do some more tests and checks on them, and then start making decisions as to where we put maybe another 30 cores, yeah. another 30 cores, uh, drilled in specific areas according to the new oceanographic maps, yeah. detailed maps, then we could put the cores down where we knew, for example, there was a, there was a fertile plain. Yeah. We get our really good sediment records, for example. Yeah. Well, I, I, th I think that's, that's perhaps the, the message from, from, from summing up this evening, is, is that more research needs to be done. Um, that there's been... Uh, a great deal already done. We already know that there was a great, a great ancient maritime culture. We know there was something corresponding to Atlantis. We don't know exactly in what form. We know that takeover count is, in essence, in principle, correct, that there was something of this sort. To, to, um, what we need to do now is to, um, to hone in on certain areas such as Iraq and, and, and try and get more precise knowledge by more research in certain areas. But the, uh, the, let's not uh, forget that Plato's principal purpose in, in, perhaps this is a good point to end on, Plato's principal point in, in reporting this uh, story, and also clearly Solon's and Socrates in, in giving the story the next day at the Athenaeum in, in Athens, it, uh, is as a, an object lesson. It was really seen as a spiritual lesson and basically the lesson was that um, A, pride comes before the fall and B, that if you overreach yourself, that is to say if you set out on a path of aggrandizement, greed and aggression, you will come to a sticky end. I mean it was basically, in Plato's account, the Athenians represented virtue and the Atlanteans represented corruption, power and greed and they are seen in Plato's account Atlantis is seen not as the originator of world civilizations but as a great threat to world civilizations that had to be defeated and it's the Greeks, the Mediterranean people who are seen as the champions and the saviors of civilization. The Atlanteans are those who try to destroy it.